Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hi, buddy. How's it going? Mr. Brad Garoon, I am fantastic. How are you today? Oh, I was not ready for that level of energy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm excited for today's show. We have uh, Steve Yen, who's the executive chef at the Ainsworth. They're a really, really unique and popular burger spot here in New York City with four locations. And uh, listen, I think if you're on the gram, you've probably seen these burgers uh, out there on the blogs and the uh, internets. Yeah. So what I think is cool about this conversation we're about to have with Steve and Yen is We've had folks on before. We've had chefs on. We've had restaurateurs on um, to talk about operations and marketing. I mean, especially marketing. It's a marketing podcast. But we haven't really talked to them specifically about what it is like to have the role of executive chef, to be the chef in charge of multiple locations and be working you know, as much on ops as you are on marketing and menu development. And Stephen, he, he gets it, and he thinks about it in a way that I think no one we've interviewed before thinks about his his position, and it made for a really good conversation. Yeah, I think he understands it from a brand perspective, and I think that's important when you are a brand like the Ainsworth. It's, it's really cool. So y'all are going to love that conversation. We'll, talk, we'll definitely get some burger talk in there, and we'll get some burger talk in here right now. Rev, good new burgers. Lay it on me. Uh, I've not been out in the marketplace, so to speak, here in a moment. Uh, but I did cook a pretty ridiculous burger for some friends on Saturday. It was International Bacon Day, and so I'm not one to shy away from hashtags or uh, fake holidays. Um, so I took two certified Angus beef uh, Schweiden Sons butcher blend patties, gr- grilled them up with some tips uh, that I took from our grilling tip show. Hint, hint, listen, listen. Uh, I added American cheese, cheddar cheese sauce, beef brisket bacon, jalapeno bacon, Spanish paprika bacon, bourbon barrel-aged bacon, and all-natural butcher cut slab bacon, that's five bacons, and put them on a sesame brioche. It was stupid. It was dumb. It was like a stunt burger at home. I, it was awesome. I won't lie. I loved it. Okay, yeah, I saw that on Instagram. It actually looked quite delicious. Um, I would like you to make that for me sometime. <laughs> it is It is a belly, gut, and uh, heart attack buster. But how about you? I know you've been back in our home state of Michigan. Any burgers there you want to tell me about? So I've been spending a lot of time with family, which means I also have not been getting out to burger joints that much. I um, I went to one up near where my sister works, but in, in your hometown of Novi, but it didn't blow my mind, so I'm not going to talk about it. What I will talk about is the power of influence, my friend, because I cooked for my family. My sister had got engaged, and so we had an engagement party barbecue, and I grilled for everybody, and... I didn't realize this until I posted what I made to Instagram, but I, I made a burger. I put it on a pretzel bun. I made a homemade burger sauce. I put that on there. I made uh, homemade grilled onions. I put that on there and I topped it with cheese. And after I posted it to Instagram, Matthew Highland of Emily posted, I like the way you look. And I took a good hard look at it. I'm like, oh crap, I just made an Emmy burger. And I had no idea that I was doing that until it was posted to the internet. Completely, completely subliminal. Totally just deep in my mind. And there it was. And I didn't taste anything like an Emmy burger because my sauce is not the Emmy burger sauce, which was unfortunate. It was fine, but it wasn't that. And the sauce is really what sets that burger off. But uh, it was pretty good. I don't know if my family is just really trying to get me to come home more often by by complimenting my burgers, but they all seem to enjoy it. 
I liked it quite a bit. And it just goes to show you that if you eat a burger enough or see it enough on the internet, it will seep into your subconscious and make its way to your barbecue. And with that, we should segue to our show and find out what inspires Chef Stephen Yen to make burgers. I want to welcome Stephen Yen back to the podcast. He's the executive chef of Page Hospitality Group and the uh, Ainsworth Restaurants with four locations uh, in the New York City area. They're basically kind of a high-end sports pub with really great food and great drinks, um, home to some of the craziest burgers in New York City. Stephen is trained at the French Culinary Institute, uh, and he comes from a background at some uh, really popular and well-known New York restaurants like Morimoto, Ketch, and Fatty Q. Stephen, uh, the Ainsworth has some ridiculous burgers, like the mac and cheese burger with two kinds of mac and cheese on it, uh, the bang bang that has a fried chicken patty, a burger, two kinds of cheese, ranch dressing, bacon, egg, and all kinds of other ones. Is there one burger that you ever added to the menu at the Ainsworth that just didn't hit the mark and had to go back on the shelf? Yeah, we, we've actually had a couple renditions of what we tried to call the Italian burger. Um, it's pretty much everyone loves Italian flavors, whether it be tomato, basil, marinara, you know, burrata cheese or mozzarella, basil. It's just it. the first time we ever did it, we actually mixed uh, ground beef with Italian sweet sausage. And it, it tasted great to us. It was delicious. But as it read on the menu, it just really didn't move. It was the dog. You know, we had to remove it, um, even though it was delicious. It's just it didn't really I didn't think I don't think we put enough thought into the marketing side of the verbiage. And that's pretty much and then we did a 2.0 where we removed some of the sausage and put a sausage patty on top of the beef burger, which was then delicious. And then you just wanted to put a fried egg on top of it. But then the whole concept of an Italian burger was kind of uh, thrown out the window. And honestly, it wasn't until we did a little joint thing with BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed moved in right above us, um, right by Union Square in that location. And long story short, one of the girls works for BuzzFeed. We grew up together. So I said, you know, we'd love to collaborate with you guys. So they did a BuzzFeed create your own burger. And it turned out the one that won was called the Pizza Burger. It was pretty much a Juicy Lucy. So it was a stuffed beef patty with uh, mozzarella cheese in the middle. Then we put more mozzarella cheese on top, pepperoni slices, and marinara, and basil all over it. That actually, it, it moves. It moves a lot, especially in Hoboken. Right now, we're, we're seeing the numbers in Hoboken. It's moving like crazy. And I think if we, if we went down that route, you know, in the beginning, it, it probably would have sold right off the bat. But, you know, we didn't even – that was the first and only Juicy Lucy or stuffed burger that the Ainsworth has ever really, really done and put on the menu – and it wasn't until to make them, instead of buying those little presses or using ring molds, what I was doing was I was taking the four ounce Schweiden Sons um, beef and putting the mozzarella in the middle and then using Activa, which is actually meat glue. And then we put it in the fridge for about six hours and then it seals itself. You know, the meat actually glued to itself. So it made the perfect Juicy Lucy and the cheese would never actually come out of there with... Um, or grilling it or anything like that. So in that case, you know, we turned something that was a horrific failure into something that was extremely successful, but I, it definitely came with the marketing side from Buzzfeed and then us being able to execute what, you know, what they, uh, what they wanted. So I think, I think we'll circle back to the Buzzfeed promotion cause that's pretty interesting. But, um, first Steven, how did you go from working at places like Morimoto to working at the Ainsworth? Um, so let's see, in, you know, in the early on stages of my career, my love, actually, when I was in culinary school, I always thought I would either cook French or Italian food. 
I never, ever, ever thought I was going to go work in an Asian restaurant. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. It was because it was more of a layup for me. I, I knew Asian cuisine. It, you know, it comes very natural, the flavor profiles and the ingredients. There's nothing in these groceries I haven't cooked before. So I always wanted to branch off and cook either Italian or French food, something to learn, you know, something new. And literally what happened was I got an internship at Fatty Q, which was American style barbecue, but with Malaysian flavors. And then me just falling back in love with all the different types of curry paste which were made from scratch. We had our own, all of our spices were pretty much, you know, toasted, ground, all the chili spices were all dehydrated. We had a huge um, dehydration program where we were making all of our own spice blends, all the different masalas, the paste, everything was from scratch. So I think that really helped me, you know, get back into Asian cuisine. And then obviously, uh, um, position to even go trail at Morimoto was pretty, was pretty special for me. And I, I knew I had to do whatever I needed to do to get that job. Um, helped propel my career. Now going into there, we went to, I took a job at Catch. At Catch, I ended up being the executive sous chef. So it was more of an oversight, more in charge of the scheduling, the food purchasing, um, the financials. And that's really where I thought, you know, this is, this is my place. You know, I, I also went to college. I went to Boston College. I studied computer science and finance. So that definitely helped me out in what, um, and nowadays yeah, I use Excel more than my knife. But I think that's definitely what helped me transition my career into becoming the corporate chef for Page Hospitality because over it's of course it's an oversight, um, but at the same time it's a lot of recipe development, making sure it works. If you know one of our chefs has a great idea, but it just costs way too much money, and or our clientele isn't the right clientele for that specific dish, you know we put it on the shelf and maybe we'll revisit in a couple months to a year, but. Making sure to keep I, to keep in mind the big picture and applying that to each individual restaurant, each individual menu item, I think is uh, from going, you know, from more. I used to work omakase at Morimoto, and that was very, very special and very intimate. It was, you know, you, one other chef, and then the people just sitting right in front of you. Every single movement you did was being watched. So in the same sense, now every single movement I'm doing is being watched, but now it's more from the investors and the owner's side, making sure the budgets and the P&Ls are being hit. And at the same time, we're producing a perfect menu for our clientele. And I think that's what I'm you know, spending the next couple of years of my life to do is really master that. So you know, in a few years, if a large, large corporation says, hey, we need a new guy, I could say I can do anything you need me to do. That's that's my goal. What kind of companies, what kind of restaurant chains have a position of executive chef? I mean, a lot of the larger companies are now going towards culinary directors, um, and especially if they bring in these chefs to do little little tweaks here and there, it actually produces a little more of a PR, I think, spurt for them. You know, let's just say if a burger place, you know, brought in like Josh Capon, you know, everyone knows Josh Capon does lore and seafood, but he's one uh, burger bash like four years so everyone respects his burger or like bobby flight people think bobby flight they think grilling and burgers that would help them the smaller i would say right now there's a huge huge demand for executive chefs and consulting chefs in a lot of these smaller i wouldn't say smaller but the concepts that was a traditional irish pub that is now they're learning that if they can band together 
and start a group with now has three to four, your buying power goes up, your negotiation power goes up, and you need someone to oversee and make it consistent because you can't just have head chefs in each property and hope for the best. You really need someone to go in and really make every single thing consistent. Like our recipes, I keep everything in grams because no matter where you are in this world, a gram is a gram versus some guy didn't, you know, go all the way to the top of the one cup measurement or we just, we want to eliminate all excuses. Um, and that's why we keep every, and that's a very French John George thing. Keep everything in grams and the bottom line is consistency as far as we're, we're concerned in the kitchens. There, there's been a lot of press lately about like the lack of culinary talent and line cooks available. Um, in a statement that was in a recent article on the Washington Post, uh, it pointed a statistic that there was only one cook for every 12 restaurants, especially in like Chicago, New York, D.C., stuff like that. Do you find this to be the case at the Ainsworth, and why do you think that's happening? So there's definitely a hunt. Like I couldn't agree more. There's a cook shortage in every single major city, and it's not – it's not a restaurant's fault. It's not the consumer's fault. It's, it's globalization. It's pretty much now food from around the world is being enjoyed everywhere, not just in large metropolitan cities. You, you can go to a small town in Connecticut and have a good pad thai noodle. And if someone comes up to you and says, you can make the same amount of money in New York City, or you can make the same amount of money in a suburb where now you can actually afford, afford to raise a family, the school district's going to be better, you're going to go with, you know, what's going to make your family happier. Um, you really can't live in New York city and grind. When I was, when I was a cook, I was making $9 50 cents an hour. You, I was living on a friend's couch for two years and that doesn't people it's, it's, they're seeing it's not worth it. And there's opportunities for them not to have to do that. But at the same time we have, um, the cook shortage, you have to go out and make your own. That's, that's the only way to do it. Like, I teach, I teach at the food and finance high school. I also sit on the board there. We also do a lot of stuff with CCAP. I take interns and you get these kids when they're really young and you mold them into what you want them to be. But also you have to realize that a lot of these guys aren't, you know, they're here to learn. So besides teaching them the culinary aspects, you have to teach them business sense. And if you teach them business sense, they'll stick around a little longer because they're really learning how to manage their money, what to do, what to learn, what, you know, what to stay away from. But you really got to go out and, and find the guys and make them, make them into something, mold them into something you need them to be, and they'll be loyal. And even if they do go, never have hard feelings. I've, I've had best friends work for me. I've fired best friends, and we're still best friends. You have to realize it's a business. At the end of the day, there's, you know, there's no hard feelings as long as everything's done in the right manner you know, with the proper notification saying, hey, I got, a, I got a great opportunity. Let me give you two weeks' notice or a month's notice for salary, guys. That's pretty much it. There, there are cooks out there, but you got to go find them. They're not coming to you anymore. So it sounds to me like you're doing an awesome job of, you know, being inspiring and and once somebody's through the door, getting them to want to be a part of it and learn. I've read and heard that some people think this is happening as a result of like the rock and rollization of chefs via like the Food Network. Do you think that's the cause of some of this? I think it's a huge. It's it's power. Marketing is power. It could be either used in good or bad. Um, like guys like Chef Gordon, when they, when they made chefs into rock stars and made them famous, they, they created something that never really existed in the public's view. Of course, it always existed in chef's view. You had chefs you looked up to, you know, everybody wanted a Scoffier's book, but the average lady at home sitting at home at 2 PM, wondering what to make at night when she turned on the TV and heard bam, or, you know, saw 
Ina Garden, she got inspired and wanted to do that. And then too many people, the whole after the after the economy kind of just tanked, people were like, you know what? I love to cook. I want to go to culinary school. I think this is fun. And then they get out of culinary school and they just they're turned off by the actualization of being in a restaurant that it's a hundred degrees. People are moving at five million miles an hour at any given moment. You need to know what's going on around you. And they can't handle it. They they can't handle it and they back out. Um, and that's that's a big problem, you know, that we're seeing. It's the problem with culinary schools is if you have a pulse, you know, they'll get they'll let you in. If you get a loan and if you have money for it, they'll let you and your friends in. So that's there's no actual applying and you know having to take a practical to even get into the schools, which is I mean, in the school's perspective, they need the money. But as far as we're concerned, it's it's really tough to find people that have graduated culinary school and handle the work and actually want to stick around. You you have some real insights from from the executive chef position and, and from actually being in a kitchen. Um, but you you've done some of this stuff as well and continue to do this stuff like you're participating in the uh, rooftop chop thing at you know New York City Wine and Food Fest. What do you think the real effect on a chef or their careers when they participate or or do TV or events like that? I mean, I th- I think the effects is you get more more publicity. It's more exposure because um, the way I like to view any of this is we need to get more people through the door into the seats. Once you're in the seat, then we actually have you for that short amount of time where we can show you what we what we like to do, what we our cuisine is, our service, or if you're coming to watch football or baseball or any of the sports, it's just getting you through the door, ha- helping you make the decision to choose us over the next guy is the reason we do we do um, you know stuff like that. Where if if it's a Facebook live feed or chop thing, it's more about getting to know us. You know, that's why we love influencers, food bloggers and influencers. It's almost as if the, uh, like you as a food influencer, you have your own following and that following has already given you their trust. So now if you say, Hey, go to the Ainsworth, try the mac and cheeseburger. They're going to want to do that because they already trust you to gain that trust costs a lot of money. And now with these outlets, it's, it's a little cheaper for us than literally spending it on marketing. I want to ask both of you a question, Stephen and Rev. So the Ainsworth, because of its, uh, because it gets its meat from Schweid and Sons, you've gotten some event support and some marketing support from Schweid and Sons. How has that relationship helped you push out your new menu offerings? And do you have that kind of relationship with any of your other providers? So I mean, I think the partnership is is phenomenal. For the longest, for the longest time, for we were using Pat Lafreda um, and. Pat Lafreda, in my opinion, it's grown to a scale that, you know, it was their goal to get that to get that large, but they've kind of lost that partnership. They really lost that where if we need something or, you know, we have questions or ideas or anything like that, we can bounce it off Schweiden Sons and we get awesome feedback. Whether it's positive or negative, you get that feedback. Um, that customer support is really not there anymore in companies like Lafreda. And it's it's really it's awesome for us to know that someone's behind us saying, I got you back. That's, that's a big key with us. Um, I mean, we do maintain great relationships with uh, like our bread company. We get all of our bread from Rolo Mio. And I think they have some of the best city, but it's also because I've tried almost every single burger bun. And if it's out there and I haven't tried it yet, I will try it. And a lot of the times just going, Blind taste test, they just have a better product. It's the same thing with Schweiden Sons. 
we it took it probably took almost a full year to switch from Lafreda to Schweinsons. And it was blind taste test after blind taste test. Finally, we decided to, I mean, at the same time, you don't want to just jump into a partnership. We really want to make sure this was going to work out for us because turning your back on another, on another partnership, it's, it's almost like a relationship. It could be, it could be really hostile, but I'm like, knock on wood. I'm actually very, very happy and pleased in the way our partnership works. Well, on behalf of Schwein and Sons, thank you, Stephen. It's an honor and a pleasure to work with you. <laughs> uh, I'll say this on sort of my half of answering that question on behalf of the company. I also don't want to make this sound like we're doing an advertisement, uh, although Stephen clearly is a fan, uh, and so am I. But, you know, we look at it this way from the company perspective. Like, we're only as strong as the relationship support we give to a customer, right? So whether our product is great or not sometimes is irrelevant, you an account might care more about like the delivery ability or who's the partner that brings it to them or the cost or like there's a hundred things that go into that decision as I'm sure Stephen would agree so for us like how do we set ourselves apart and it's establishing relationships and you know Stephen aside you know like look we like people who like burgers (laughs) so we're happy to to help in any way possible you know how do we go beyond the burgers kind of the question we ask so with that as the cost of you know operating a restaurant becomes more and more expensive, you know without the ability to have menu prices that like inflate at the same rate as inflation, you know many restaurants start to actually cut corners on food quality, and maybe those partnerships don't matter. Maybe price is what's driving their decision. Um, that doesn't really seem to be in your DNA. So my question is, how important is sourcing quality ingredients, and, and how do you make the prices work then? I mean, that's that's the basis of what we hold what we hold dearly to our hearts. You know. Getting awesome products, awesome ingredients is the only thing that we really, really care about. And I have no problem, you know, looking at our financial guys and saying, listen, the food cost was a little bit high this week, but it's also because the sales are pretty low. And I would never jeopardize our food quality by substituting, you know, another product. And we've had that discussion before where they've said, okay, you know, next month we're projecting this much in sales. Should we go with substitute? And I said, absolutely not. I'd rather um, us, you know, take the hit in the food costs and then not being able to be like, let's just say eligible for bonuses for the chefs because we'd rather stick by better products. Um, and that's the bottom line. There's, there's no reason because if we go to a, a sub quality product, we're going to lose the trust of every single person that we've ever fed to this day. You know, it's, it's almost like cheating on them. It's you're looking at someone in the face and you're lying and you're cheating them. And we can't do that. I can't do that. Um, and that's why it's pretty important for us, you know, for, to maintain sales. Like everyone knows inflation is crazy. People are either doing a lot more meal deliveries or fast casuals there. There's it's New York city. You're going to have competition every, everywhere. So instead of cutting corners in the kitchen or anything like that, you know, obviously we always, always overanalyze where we can cut as far as maybe labor or, you know, the overhead um, payroll. That's, that's pretty much it. You know, payroll takes a huge hit. So now can I take my guys and just train them to be more efficient? So instead of having, you know, three guys over the course of a day, maybe I can have two guys, but these guys, I'm paying them a little more but they're a lot more proficient in what they do. And that just comes down to education and training because it is possible. Everyone, everyone can learn this. 
but that's pretty much it's just focusing on your own employees. I've noticed in the last four or five years, sort of the the menu direction of the Ainsworth has changed, and, I'm, and I know that that's in large part to, to your participation in the restaurant chain. Uh, before you came on, and I think for for many many years, the Ainsworth had a stigma of being you know a sports bar for for an obnoxious crowd, and now it's the marketing and the messaging of the restaurant of the restaurant chain has been it is a it is a high end sports bar. We have great great food. How have you used your menu and let's say social media specifically to push that messaging out? When I first joined on the the menu was all over the place. They had more items that were maybe just for one or two, like more ingredients that were just for one or two menus, uh, item menus that was is just really really a bad decision that I thought. You know, there's so many skews inside, and the inventory was insane. So. Everyone always says, you know, simpler is better. So that was the first initial, the first initial reaction was to downsize, get everything down to where we wanted to be. Let's, what do we want our focus to be? We said, okay, we're an upscale sports bar. We want to focus on burgers, steaks, cocktails. Um, So that's, that was the initial direction. And then we started to see, and you know what, when there's no football on, we were getting a lot of families coming in and we said, we want to make sure that these families are just as happy as a guy on Sunday watching the Giants. So especially in Hoboken, we have a kid's menu. Um, During the week at lunchtime, we have all the mothers with their kids come in for lunch. And we have adapted to that. And with that said, we want to hit, we want to have something for everyone without being all over the place. So whether you're a healthy eater, whether you're a burger lover, or you're a guy who, you know, just wants a steak medium rare, we have, and the flavor profile, what we're going for is just something that's going to be memorable. We want, like the mac and cheese is invoking memories on when you're a little kid eating mac and cheese. That's pretty much, you know, then we have an item. It's for the longest time, some of our investors always wanted chicken fingers. And we said, we're not going to put chicken fingers on our menu. But a good a good way that we did it was we, we, we do panko chicken and fries. So it's a traditional tonkatsu sauce, Japanese mayonnaise on panko breaded, chicken tenders, you know, with French fries underneath it. So we've taken something that's very Japanese fast food and applied it to the Ainsworth. But it works because of how many people love Japanese cuisine. And, you know, especially not even Japanese fine dining cuisine. I mean, like Japanese cuisine as far as like curry and ramen and udon and all and and yakitori. The the stuff on St. Mark's Place when you can go get bombed and, you know, have some fun, like as if you were in college. And that really transitions really well into sports bar food that we've seen. You've alluded to this, but, you know, certainly the Ainsworth is not the only restaurant in New York City and definitely not the only one serving like creative burgers and other menus. Yet, you know, you and the restaurant seem to get a lot of coverage in the media, the news, blogs, marketing programs with influencers on this podcast. <laughs> what, what goes into making that happen? Like, how do you set the difference? I think the biggest difference that we want is we want our competition to do just as good or even better than us because we we love competition. As you've seen, our president, Brian Mazza, loves competition. He goes to the gym three times a day. Um, I love competition, but it's more of a food more of a food side, you know. I like being challenged. I like to challenge my chef friends. We have heated debates, which usually end up, ends up with cook-offs. Um, but, you know, if we were the only guys in the block, I probably wouldn't be here. I wouldn't do this. 
we want to be one of a hundred and want to stand out and want the rest, all 99 of them to be moving forward with us. We, that's what we want. I, you'll never ever hear from us or our company anything that is spiteful or, you know, we've never put down like we love Blacktop. I think Blacktop is doing a great job. Um, Hard Time Sundays is doing a phenomenal job. You know, what, what, what he's doing over there is something that, you know, should be in a book one day. But that's what we want. We want to see people succeed, and we also want to be there with them. Um, I think in that marketing perspective, it, it shines the light towards us more because nobody, nobody wants to hear you know, negative remarks or negative thoughts. No, nobody wants to be a negative person. You know, People strive to be positive. You always hear us turn that frown upside down. No one ever says, you know, wipe that smile off your face and put a frown on what sets us apart, just being really positive. You are one of the few chefs who I see frequently outside of your own restaurants, and you're the only chef who I've seen travel to the Upper West Side to try new food. <laughs> is that a big part of how you draw inspiration for your restaurants, and, and or is it more, you know, you want to be a part of the community out there eating? I know I follow Tasty Goodness. I know you're posting up uh, great food photos from all over the place. How important do you think it is for you to be out there in the culinary community trying new things? I think it's extremely important. It's, you know, showing support for everybody else, exposure for ourselves, um, as far as exposing ourselves to, you can only be so creative. And at the same time, we take, you know, inspiration, creativity from each other. And that's extremely, I mean, it's really important to me. It's, I mean, plus I love to eat, you know, whether if, if it's not, if it's not going to be, um, like a food expo or something like that, I'm still going to be eating somewhere. So the fact that New York City actually brings so many people of like-minded together, which it's, it's even better, it shows support. Because if, if I see someone that I recognize from another company, whether they're competition or, you know, some other type of aspect of dining, it's great to see them, you know, make it out to events, if, especially if we're hosting or we're participating, because it shows that, you know, they, they want to know what's going on as well. And that's pretty much the bottom line there. Well, I can say that I also follow at Tasty Goodness on the Instagram, but I've also eaten with you, including on the Upper West Side, and you're a fun person to hang with and a fun person to eat with. So Thank you. Uh, you, to me, are as much an influencer as you as a chef. So so with that, and this has really been an awesome conversation, Stephen, um, before we get to our final questions, we want to ask you about cooking at home. What tips do you have for making the very best burger? So if you're at home and you don't have a backyard, you know, if you're like the rest of us that – live in a shoebox in New York City, um, I would say a cast iron pan is your best bet. It's only because a lot of the times the stoves that, that you have in your apartment, the BTUs are not high at all. So that cast iron, the heavier it is, the more heat it's going to retain. It's not going to lose. It's not going to lose or have a huge change in temperature. And I would do, if I'm cooking at home, I would probably do a sear sear roast which is very traditional in every like French protein cooking in kitchens where you sear on both sides and you finish in the oven roasting. That way your outside and inside are cooked perfectly without drying out or overcooking the outside and undercooking the inside. Um, if you, if you do have the luxury of a backyard and you have a grill, try your hardest to go with charcoal. If not, you know, you use your propane cause it's very convenient, but temperature zones, having at least two temperature zones, a high, and then like a medium, medium, low heat, um, that's extremely important. We, I, you never want to see these burgers ripping out at high heat all the way through because you're just, one, your moisture is going to get ripped out of there. Every, all your flavor is gone. Two, you're going to overcook the outside. The inside is going to be undercooked. It's, it's going to, the 
the burger itself is probably going to balloon up on you, which nobody ever wants. But then you always hear these tips at home saying, put a dimple in the middle of your burger. You don't need to put a dimple in the middle of your burger if you're just cooking it properly. So I think in, you know, the education on that side is a little weird. Instead of teaching someone how to cook properly, they're teaching you like another hack to try to fix the hack that, you, you know, you're not cooking properly, which is weird to me. But I think at home, cast iron pan, heavy, sear, sear, roast inside, outside, you know, use charcoal, two temperature zones. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how I would cook the very best burger at home. All right, let's keep it on burgers. What was your favorite burger growing up? The Rodeo Burger. This was a Burger King. Um, so growing up in, in our town, we actually didn't have a McDonald's. So we had a Burger King. And when we were really young, you know, picture kids riding their bikes into town, we'd, we'd always end up at Burger King. And when the Rodeo Burger first came out, and for the people who don't know what Rodeo Burger is, pretty much a cheeseburger with barbecue sauce and onion rings on it. It was, it was phenomenal, you know, and then the fact that you could get it for a dollar, which made my high school career even better because you got like 20 minutes to get lunch and everybody wants to leave campus and you're flying all over the place and you end up with like just two rodeo burgers and you're just, you're happy. <laughs> so actually that, that has come to an inspiration where you might be seeing a rodeo burger on the Ainsworth menu pretty soon. Yo man, can we talk about rodeo burgers for a moment? Yeah. I love rodeo burgers. I feel like this is kind of a missing missing burger build from from the past that needs to resurface. Absolutely. It's it's got just enough of what you want because you have that onion, but you get the crunch and then you have that barbecue sauce. It's a little bit sweet with a little bit of tang and then it's almost it's almost as if the meat it plays it plays like a side role, but it's one of the best supporting actors or actresses, you know, out there. And the whole thing if you picture barbecue in the South, when they just give you that, you know, sliced white bread to mop up all the sauce, that's almost like what the bread's doing in a rodeo burger. And it's, it's, it's just instantaneous happiness. I think the three of us need a trip to my favorite rodeo burger spot in New York City for research purposes. Absolutely. Rollin' Roaster. Have you had it? No, I haven't. Where is it? Uh, out in uh, Sheep's Head Bay, Brooklyn. It's a roast beef joint, but they have a rodeo burger there, and it's stupid. It's so good. We're going. <laughs> I love it. There's right, also Steve. one uh, off the menu at uh, Union Bar and Kitchen. They call it the Getty's Burger, and it's, uh, it's the best one I've had this year. Really? What are they doing different with it? It's big. I like big. <laughs> okay, we have two spots, then it's a burger crawl. Steven, uh, other than an Ainsworth burger, what was the last good burger you ate? Uh, let's, this is tough. There's been a lot of them. Uh, let's see right here. I think the last good burger I ate was actually at this Korean spot, and it was the bimibap burger. So it had all the bimibap veggies. So you had your daikon, carrots, your sautéed spinach with sesame oil, and some zenmai uh, royal ferns. And then they did a bimibap sauce with a fried egg on top of that. So now picture bimibap, you know, the Korean rice dish where you mix up the egg and the, and, and the rice in the, stone, in the stone bowl, and now put that on a burger and then put a fried egg on top. And then also they give you a little bit of gochujang on the side, which is, you know, this sweet uh, Korean chili paste. So that with the runny egg was probably the best burger I've had in a long time. And I've tried, I actually tried, I did a tasting for my owner trying to get it onto the Ainsworth menu, but they just didn't think it was going to um, translate as well as I did. That's disappointing. I've actually had bimbibop burgers before, and uh, they're usually winners. Yeah. Do we want to say where this was? Oh, uh, yeah. It was at a place in Astoria called Mokja, M-O-K-J-A, right on Broadway. 
Um, I live in Astoria, so it's pretty much just like a, a walk away. And they also do kimchi fries with uh, spicy mayo on top. That's just the hangover cure or a pregame. You know, it's it's perfect. So before we all break for lunch, uh, Stephen, what is a what's a piece of advice? One piece of advice you'd give to someone in the restaurant marketing business? Write it down. Keep it keep it documented. I keep journals after journals. I have like bookshelves of just notes because um, I consider myself a smart person, but I don't remember everything. You know, so I literally the minute I have. The minute I have a minute, I write it down if I can't write it down immediately. And that could be, I have notes from working next to other line cooks, you know, just from stuff that they've seen in other restaurants. Or I have notes from chefs. I have notes from, you know, every every person you can ever think of, I have notes from. And it's only because you're not going to remember everything. And then go over those notes. Like a year later, two years later, just spend a Sunday and just go through some notes and you'll realize either your progression or maybe there's something you want to go back and touch on. I think that's some great advice. And I have seen a, uh, I've taken a look into your notes when I asked you about French fries once and you are not joking. Um, <laughs> Stephen, this has been a really great episode, some really great insights. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and, and sharing some of your knowledge. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Um, until the website's actually up, that will be, you know, a future project. I'd say on Instagram, tasty goodness on uh, Twitter. It's, Bruce Leone, um, obviously on Facebook, you can just find me, Stephen Yen. I use my I use my personal email, which is Yen ate it, Y E N, the number eight, I T at Gmail. It's because what happened to the food? Yen ate it. <laughs> um, that's where you can find more about me. That's great. <laughs> Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidensons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.